talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Today is my mom's birthday. Happy birthday to the best mom in the world. And thanks for putting up with dad. Hey, hey, Here's hey. Let's go. You know. Can you just not be nice? Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Will Weber on the board. Spinning the, uh, spinning the Sultans of Swing Dire Straits. Why? Uh, this was Dave Woodard's idea and a good one at that. Uh, up to bat tonight. Uh, and of course, the Blue Jays home opener. So uh, getting you in the swing, as they say. All right. Uh, a big day today. And it's a big day uh, for a lot of reasons. Number one, I got my booster. Oh, you thought I was going to talk about the country. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, I got my booster today, so uh, thank you very much. I'll give you a one-hand clap back because my left one's, no, it's fine. It's completely fine. Uh, and, of course, as you all know, uh, and you know what? They ask you this. Is this your uh, third or fourth shot? My fourth. Holy smokes. And there was a girl in front of me getting her fourth. They got holy smokers. Uh, but, you know, mine delayed because I was actually supposed to get mine the week after I had COVID. Uh, but then once you get COVID, you don't need one for a while. Uh, anyway, so uh, feel good so far. You know, I mean, can't complain. And I got a nice one of those little round bandages on. So uh, all is good. So it's a triple good day today because not only, as Kurt mentioned, is it my wife's birthday. I also got my booster. But you know what? It's not. Wait a sec. It's my wife's birthday, not mine. I got my Doug Ford license uh, renewal check. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yay! Hopefully that will help me pay for uh, the five or six hundred bucks that my propane bill has gone up. But that's another question. And by the way, on that note, the Prime Minister is in town. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in town. And we are trying desperately to get him on the show. And you know what? He's not returning our calls. I'm not sure why, uh, but I would love to chat with him and ask him, uh, you know, what his reaction is when people call and they say, you know, I just got my bill for propane and it's five to six hundred dollars more than the last one. So, uh, yeah, we're going to keep trying. Uh, Will's in the cloud and uh, Erskine's in the cloud and he's uh, he's got the fishing rod out. Whether he gets a bite, we'll wait and see. Uh, all right. So uh, what else we got going around? Uh, the uh, you know, it's fascinating. Uh, speaking of the um, of of the booster shot and such. And and, you know, we're we're getting we are getting really conflicting messages, um, not from politicians, but from doctors and uh ctv news did a thing where they blended two different doctors in each segment and one said basically the opposite of what the one previous said uh and dr colin Furness, who we've had on the show we've had both these doctors and dr chakrabarty uh both of these we've had on the show both these doctors both great uh you know experts in their field uh colin Furness, dr colin Furness says quote we're in for a dreadful time uh, dr chakrabarty a, a completely different take uh, and saying things like, uh, we're in a different place right now. Um, we have to look beyond the numbers. Uh, we have high numbers, but a much, much less degree of sickness. 
and uh, a huge vaccination rate. And he said, quote, it's time to change our perspective and not be concerned about cases that rise and fall. Um yeah, anyway, so I can't read my writing. So, you know, fascinating. And, you know, we have a communication crisis. Uh, I'm writing with my foot. Anyway, it's fascinating how we're getting two different uh, sort of aspects of where we are and what we are. And that is reflected in the poll question of the day today. Uh, with COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations up over the past week, should we reintroduce the mask mandate? And right now we're sitting at about 50-50, a half saying yes, and half are saying no. Uh, this as, I guess, Quebec and PEI are the only ones left with masking mandates. Uh, British Columbia now dropping its uh, vaccination card program today as well. So, um, you know, it's fascinating to to uh, see what we're going through and, and mix messaging. And, you know, I, I don't think that, well, I don't know. Uh, yeah, of course, it is mixed messaging. I just said that. Uh, but it, it certainly leaves us to think for ourselves uh, in the sense that, and you wonder why governments have a hard time uh, making decisions here? Look at this. I mean, here's two examples of, of completely different opinions of very well-respected people. Uh, and again, the only thing as a person who's been through this virus and fully vaccinated and now boosted, you know, the only thing I can think is we're not nowhere near as sick as we were before. And or the threat of, of becoming ill because there was no vaccine during the first and second waves. And, you know, also very interesting. Uh, I'm going to find this for you. Uh, very interesting uh, piece. And, you know, I'm, I spend all morning going through the media and various, you know, articles and such. This one out of CTV, a new observational study out of the UK found that those who contract Omicron experience different systems than uh, symptoms rather rather than are usually that are usually less severe and less and last shorter than those who are infected with the Delta variant. It goes on to find that the study found that some of the more debilitating symptoms, including brain fog, eye burning, dizziness, fever, headaches, were also less prevalent in Omicron. Uh, Participants infected with Omicron were also less likely to report suffering from a cough, according to the study. However, uh, what they still say you get is a sore throat and a hoarse voice. Uh, this is all coming out of the peer-reviewed medical journal, The Lancet, and it will be presented at the European Congress of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases later this month. And I think what's really important here, and, 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 and I guess the point that's trying to be made is, yes, cases are up, but the, vi- the variant is far less severe and... Over 90% of us are vaccinated. Now, the concern is the health system and and keeping it in balance. But again, as Dr. Chakabarty would say, they're not staying as long. It's not. It's a, It's just a different place. We're in a very, very different place, and that's something to remember as we try to move forward and uh, and come up with new protocol if needed, or 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 just try to get on with life. So, just some of the stuff that's on the show. Of course, we're going to talk about the budget. Obviously, we've been going through a global pandemic for uh, a couple of years now, a little more than that. Um, we're seeing things, uh, protocols and such, uh, be relaxed, but we're also seeing, uh, some cases rise. It's a different world, as I just mentioned, but that still has plenty of people concerned. Uh, and, and we've talked over the last couple of years of what back to work will look like. And there was a lot of, well, maybe this, maybe that, uh, as the rubber is getting close to hitting the road, let's bring in Dr. Catherine Connolly, professor of human resources and management at McMaster. And with us now, doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. 
I am. Thank you. So <laughs> we nice we you today. Yeah, and nice to have you here. We're, we're uh, glad you took some time for us. You know, for the last two years, we've been talking, you know, maybe it'll be this, maybe it'll be that. Uh, and there has been some clarity as, as we've gotten through this. But what are we likely to see, say, in the next year? Well, I, I, it's hard to know exactly, Scott, but I would say it's unlikely that things will go back to exactly how they were before. So with every other pandemic we've ever had, right? So look at the AIDS pandemic, look at the pandemic and the flu in the early 1900s. Things didn't revert back to exactly how they were. So likely some of the things that we've been doing over the last two years are likely to stay on. So so are we looking for a happy medium here? How do we find that balance? between employer and employee. Right, so for every organization, this is gonna be a little bit different, but a lot of employees have, over the last two years, they found things about working from home that they actually like. So, I mean, this was a huge adjustment at the beginning, right? A lot of places, they were given a weekend and told, okay, from now on, you're doing this. It was a huge shock, but Two years have gone by and people have adjusted, they've adapted, they have new routines, and some of of these have been actually very productive. So for some employees, they were told, you're never allowed to work from home. You have to be in the office all the time. And suddenly they had to adjust and then they realized, no, this is actually working just fine. So a lot of employees, uh, they find it quieter at home. They have maybe um, uh, a door on their office that closes. And mm. so they can, they can think more. They can be um, a little more productive. Um, maybe they feel that they have better work-life balance because they don't have a commute and uh, they're not spending money on parking or gas or transit passes. So these are all kind of positive things that people sort of like now. Um, what about, I remember at the beginning of this, and as you said, we've adjusted to it over time, but people missed the camaraderie, missed the brainstorming. Then it seemed we got a little divisive over things in life. Do we still have that uh, ambition to get back for the social reasons? And how will that part of this change? Can we still brainstorm or do we have to be there? How do you see that aspect of where we do actually encourage or want interaction? How, how do we, how do we, uh, what's the template for that? So Scott, that's a fascinating observation because you're drawing the link between this, this lack of kind of cheerful dialogue between people are angry they're mean to each other on twitter and people have a lot of like bubbles where they only talk to people who agree with each other or Mm -hmm. agree with themselves right and so we've lost out on a lot of chance interactions um like the ones we used to have around a water cooler right where you'd run into somebody Mm -hmm. you didn't know very well but you kind of chit chat a little bit and find common ground and that was a lot of your eight-hour workday was these kind of chance interactions with people. Now, you can see maybe socially the effects of this. We have a more divided population, but you also see it in the workplace, right? Where you need these mundane, boring conversations about the weekend, about your garden, about your pets, and it's not work-related. But then later, 
when you're having a work conversation, you know that person a little bit and you trust them a little bit. And so you can have a more useful, productive conversation because you already trust each other. So if this disappears, or even if we just have a little bit less of that, it's not good for organizations. Maybe it's not good for society either. So uh, what if you have staff that want to work from home? Is it a hybrid bit there, bit here? Or is there some way of bridging that gap while working at home? Yeah. So, I mean, COVID's still with us, right? So, and people have had two years to really understand their own risk tolerances and to understand what they are comfortable doing. So a company that's forcing people or pushing people beyond their comfort zone, that is likely to backfire. Right? So if there's a way that you can kind of bridge these social connections at least a few more months until maybe things improve at least a little bit more, then you can have kind of online social things still. You can have people maybe um, get together informally outside just as a way of trying to include more people. The, the real danger when we have these hybrid workplaces is that sometimes you end up with an in-group and then an out-group. Hmm. And the in-group gets insider information or the out-group feels that they're missing out on things that they need to know just to be able to do their jobs or to get promoted. And so that, that distinction between kind of the insiders and the, and the at-homers, uh, that can be a real problem. So let's, uh, all business is about money. It's about the bottom line. Uh, many were worried that, you know, if everybody goes home, everybody's just going to goof off. And obviously the opposite has happened. It's turned out to be quite productive. So what about what's cheaper? More, what's more cost effective for the company? Forget the employee. I know the company's, oh, we're looking after our people now. But at the, at the end of the day, is this cheaper for them? So it depends on the company. So a lot of companies have uh, overhead costs that they spend a lot on real estate just to be able to house all their employees. So if there is a way to reduce that, then they have some savings. But with a lot of companies, like the size of your business is just the size, right? So it's not like you're going to rent out, I don't know, a 10 by 12 cubicle to somebody else. So you probably won't get too much in the way of savings. So what you're left with is turnover costs, right? So are all your employees going to quit on you because they can work online somewhere else? That's really bad for your bottom line. It's a huge cost that sometimes people don't think about. Uh, And then the other issue is productivity, right? And so in this case, you need to look at your employees' performance, not just by watching them work, like not just by monitoring, but look at their output. So what can they produce? And are they producing more at home or in the office? And don't just look at the individuals, but look at the teams. Because if the team functions better when people are in the office, at least sometimes, then you might want to continue that. Fascinating discussion, and we'll talk more. Dr. Catherine Conley with us, Professor of Human Resources and Management at McMaster, as we head back. Catherine, thanks so much for the time and insight. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Big day. Big day for the Blue Jays. Big day for everybody. Big day for Canada uh, because there's actually people in the stands and an actual home opener. Do you remember what that is? It's kind of like a concert, um, you know, where people are on stage and singing. Well, this is like when people are playing sports, you know, in, in a stadium. And, 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 and guess what? Everyone's there. 
all the seats are filled. Uh, to talk more about tonight's home opener, Barry Davis is with us, former Blue Jays field reporter. You can you can hear him in the Out of the Park and Sessions podcast and with us now. Barry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well, thank you. And I totally understand that if uh, the Prime Minister does call, that I'm getting bumped. So let's, <laughs> let's get as much of this out of the way as well. we can. I don't know, Barry, because, you know, the home opener, the the prime minister, uh, they're pretty, both close, pretty right? big. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Especially considering that there really hasn't been anything like this uh, in the last couple of years. It's funny. I was watching as we were talking about this earlier in the week. They show you the footage of uh, which they do every year of the very first uh, Blue Jay home opener that everybody mm-hmm. was at with all the snow and such. Ten million you th- people were there. Did you know <laughs> that? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And everybody, knows it's like COVID. Everybody knows someone who was there uh, or has had it. So where do you think, uh, you know, and again, a home opener is a home opener and the fans love it and everybody loves it because you're coming back. But, man, this is different because it's after two years of, of COVID-19, still, in the, you know, and the end of it, uh, per se, but uh, certainly a lot different. Where does this home opener stack up with others? Oh, I think it, it's going to be one of the biggest ones. And think about the stars on the Toronto Blue Jays, Bo Bichette and Vladimir Guerrero and you know, Kevin Biggio and all these young guys. They have never, in Springer even, have never been Toronto Blue Jays playing in a sold-out yeah. Rogers Center. This is going to be a first for them. I mean, you can't, uh, you, you cannot uh, understate just how vital these last few seasons were uh, to really make it tough for the Blue Jays to get it a sense of home field advantage because they were bouncing all over the place and playing in front of the small crowd. So this is going to be big. And then, Scott, when you put on top of that, the expectations for the team and how many are saying this is this is a world series contender um, this could be a very memorable opening day and season you know uh, that's something i never thought about barry and you bring up a very valid point there's a lot of blue jays who've never had the chance to experience uh this uh yet and as well uh you know obviously from a fan perspective we obviously know how everybody feels about finally getting out and such and very excited about that but this will be a great time for the fans and the players to hear the appreciation from the fans. So I, I never thought of that perspective, but it will be huge for the players as well, yeah. won't it? it? It's it's crazy to think that the last time the Blue Jays made the playoff run, 2016, there's not a single player from that team yeah. that's in the organization right now. Not a single. They're gone. Every one of them. So this is a whole new cast. And at the time, at the end of the 2016 season, when uh, Atkins and Shapiro started taking that team apart, fans were livid. How can you take? What can you? you know, this is a playoff team. What are you doing? These guys don't know what they're doing. Well, they did, and they had a plan. And their plan was to, you know, let go a number of the players that were near the end and replace them with younger guys. And it was going to take a few years. And now here we are, and we see it. And all those young players have, you know, blossomed into this incredible team that they have. And there are, I can't think of very many players from that 2016 team that the Jays are looking back thinking, oh, I wish we'd kept them. Right? You know, you bring, I mean, you, bring, you bring up another valid point, Barry, in the sense that, you know, we've talked uh, over the last two years about, you know, how everybody's had to adjust. Businesses have changed. You know, you look at the hospitality industry, obviously, with not being basically open for two years. They've had chances to rejig, reno, what have you. And you're going to see the same with sports teams. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, uh, and and it's always hard for fans because when a team does well, you really start to fall in love with these players and they become part of your life. And the thing is, in sports, players don't have a very 
lengthy shelf life. And neither does a group or a team. And that's what makes this season even more important for the Jays is because we've seen, we saw in 15 and 16, we saw in 92 and 93, that window of opportunity is not a very big one. All right. The, the important thing the Jays have to do is take advantage of the situation they're in. You know, a lot of people have talked about how cheap the Toronto Blue Jays are. Well, they have a payroll that they're starting with opening day, $170 million in salaries. And that, that's the biggest that this organization's ever had. Now, I understand inflation causes some of that, but this is a team that's spending now. They're, they're spending the money. They're grooming players. They're doing everything that an organization should be doing. Like they followed the plan to a T. Now we have to see how it's going to play out. You alluded earlier, Barry, World Series. Uh, can they make it? Uh, is it possible to tell now? Um, what are your thoughts for the for the future? Well, I remember uh, in 2013, the Blue Jays were predicted to win the World Series. Vegas had them as the odds-on favorite. They were getting all this media attention from all over uh, the United States, and the team absolutely tanked. So at that point, I, I realized that predictions are not really valid in in the world of sports however um this is the best overall team i've seen in a long long time and i think this this squad has every opportunity to be there at the end and even if they don't win the world series this is going to be a real fun summer what about fans that are heading back a new stadium experience what can they uh what can they expect are we going to see anything new there well i know that they've got a brand new jumbotron that they're about to unveil tonight and I mean, I thought their old Jumbotron was fine, but I also thought, you know, regular 1080p was fine until 4K <laughs> came out, right? Uh, I, I actually still listen to vinyl more than anything else, so I, I technology doesn't really, you know... You're good with the Jumbotron. Like yes, exactly. So, anyway, brand new Jumbotron. They've also got uh, a bunch of craft beers that are available now, too. And here I am, like, you know, shilling for the Toronto Blue Jays. And uh, I think they've... I heard they've got, like, Mary Brown's Chicken they put in there, too. So, uh, you know... Bring, bring uh, extra, extra money because you know it's going to cost twice the amount that it would outside. All right, Barry Davis with his former uh, Blue Jays field reporter. You can hear him on the Out of the Park and Sessions podcast talking about opening night for the Jays tonight. Barry, thanks for the time. Be well. All right, Scott. Thanks for having me on. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. All right, yesterday, big budget day, and uh, depending on who you ask, some love it, some didn't like it, um, some just don't know, and we'll have to wait till the, uh, it, it all settles and, and we see where we are uh, in, in a few months or a year from now. Uh, that being said, the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is with us. They have an opinion. Franco uh, Terrazano is with us. Franco, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, I am doing well, and thanks so much for having me on today. So what are your thoughts on this, Franco? Because it really depends on uh, who you're talking to and who you're listening to as to what uh, whether this is good, bad, or ugly, or whatever it is. What are your thoughts from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation point of view? Well, we're very critical of this budget. Uh, this, to us, looks like another credit card budget from what's turning into a credit card government. And here's why I say that. The deficit this year is coming in just shy of $53 billion. Now, that is a huge budget deficit, and it's following... Uh, astronomical deficits of $300 billion plus in 2020 and more than $100 billion in 2021. So another massive deficit. But what's so frustrating is that we see absolutely zero plan, absolutely zero timeline 
to get the budget back to balance. Instead, over the next few years, the government's going to be adding about $150 billion to the $1 trillion debt tab. And on top of that, too, a ton of money being wasted on interest charges. Every single month, taxpayers are going to be paying more than $2 billion on interest charges on the government's credit card bills. Um, I was talking to a biz prof yesterday, and he pointed out, well, if you look at the spending over the last couple of years, it's way down. But my response to that was, well, the last two years, it's been flying out the door because there's a pandemic. And now the pandemic and the subsidies have pretty much come to an end. That's how we can explain that. Is that not? Yeah, with respect to the person that you were talking to, that business professor, I think that is just a completely wrong approach to take when looking at this budget. I mean, you're spending less than what you did over the last two years, but that's nothing to be bragging about. That's nothing to be taking a victory lap about. Just because the deficit is smaller than the last two years, that would be like you know calling your own mom and saying, "Hey, uh, you know, I was in the drunk tank, but don't worry about it. I was the most sober person in the drunk tank." Um, <laughs> it's really, it's really nothing to brag about. Um, the, the best comparison is to look at spending this year compared to pre-pandemic. Now, this year, the government is going to be spending about $452 billion. That's $90 billion more than pre-pandemic. And why that's so eye-watering is because pre-pandemic, the federal government was spending all-time highs. So before the pandemic, Trudeau spent more than the federal government did during any single year during World War II. And this year, he wants to spend $90 billion more. What do you say, Franco, to those that are saying, well, we need this stuff. People are hurting and, um, you know, we need to make the rich pay. (laughs) Well, I guess there's two different questions there. Number one is on the spending. Do we need this type of spending? Well, no. Is this type of spending, is this type of massive deficits, these debts that are really increasing the pain? These debts have become inflationary um, for a few different reasons. Um, first, in, in, in many respects, you're propping up demand and doing so through the printing press, where you had the government's central bank print about $370 billion out of thin air. And of course, the more dollars that the central bank prints, the less that your dollars buy. And it ties directly into government deficits because much of what the, gov- the Bank of Canada is using to create these new dollars, it's buying Government of Canada debt. So you have Ottawa that has been using the printing press to finance its deficits, which is reducing the value of the dollars that we have in our savings account. Now, in the sense of making the rich pay, (laughs) well, the problem there for everyday Canadians is that those type of taxes always find themselves trickling down to Canadians. Right, we we see a, a tax on banks and insurance companies. Now, I'm not going to lose too much sleep over big bankers, but what I am going to lose sleep over are the Canadians that are already struggling and that walk into their bank and are now going to be paying higher fees. Hmm. What about the housing industry? I mean, uh, obviously that has bolted to the top of of, of the charts when it comes to what's uh, bothering people, keeping them up at night, as well as inflation. There was a suite of policies announced by in the budget. Uh, is this going to help people get into houses? You know, it's only time will really tell. But what we're really concerned about on the affordability file is that all of this is being spent with more debt. So how are they going to pay for this? Are they going to continue to use the printing press to fund their deficits? Well, that's inherently inflationary. Are they going to raise taxes to, to, to finance the massive deficits? Again, 
inherently inflationary, increasing the cost of living. The problem is, is that you have this government that is trying to fight inflation <laughs> essentially by taking on more debt. Well, trying to fight inflation with more government debt is like trying to put out a fire with a gas can. It's just making things worse. Um, now, on the housing side, two things that uh, the government can do in conjunction with other governments is one, you have to essentially get out of the way, reduce the regulations, reduce the municipal zoning policies that are stopping companies from being able to build more homes. But then two, from the federal government standpoint, you got to get the central bank under control in the sense that you have to turn off the printing press, which is ballooning these types of assets. Franco Terrazano with us, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, weighing in on yesterday's budget 2022. Franco, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Hey, my pleasure. Have a great weekend. Budget 2022 unveiled yesterday. And I think more people interested in this budget than most, you know, budget. Well, who cares? All right. Uh, what's for dinner? Uh, but this one generating a lot of interest and a uh, column in the National Post from our next guest, uh, Sabrina Madeau. Christ, uh, Christia Freeland's budget crushes millennial home buyer dreams to talk more about all of this from the National Post. Uh, Sabrina Madeau is with us now. Sabrina, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks for having me. Um, I won't ask you if you think that this will make it easier for people to buy a first home. So I'll ask you this. Why do you not think that uh, this budget will help uh, Canadians buy their first home? Uh, there are a few reasons. Uh, first, the there was a bunch of um, budget committed to solving supply issues, which are important. But as we've seen over the last few Liberal budgets, all the money that they put into new construction tends not to get spent. We haven't seen them meet any of their construction targets over the last several years. And on top of that, supply is largely controlled by provinces and municipalities. And there just aren't any strong incentives for them to really boost construction. So that's one part of it. And the other side is the demand side. Uh, there were a few measures to supposedly clamp down on demand, one of those being the uh, foreign investment ban, which should uh, take place for two years. But it's not really a ban at all because there is a bunch of exemptions. And one of those is foreign students. And we know foreign students have played a huge role in propping up housing prices, particularly in Toronto and Vancouver. And the other major exemption is for recreational properties, which is a really broad category. You know, that's not, you think cottages by a lake, but that could be homes near a ski hill, that could be a pied a terre in a city, or really anything an investor wants it to be. So it's hard to see how that will be enforced in any meaningful way. It seems that what we're seeing is more ways to come up with a down payment for a home that you can't afford. Yes, there is that as well. They've introduced a new tax-free account for first home buyers. Um, but I don't see it helping very much. And the reason for this is, A, it's not going to kick in until sometime in 2023. And then essentially, it's going to allow first time home buyers to put up to $8,000 into this account every year for five years until they hit $40,000. And then any investment income on that, they can also withdraw tax free. Um, but by the time those five years are up, if house prices keep going like they are, th that money isn't going to qualify for any sort of down payment on a reasonable place and certainly not near where most jobs for young people are. Um, and it also replaces the RRSP benefit that right now you can take out up to $35,000 mm -hmm. loan it from your RRSP. 
But if you do that, then you can't use this account. So it's not really adding a benefit as much as it is replacing it. And I just, I don't think it's going to do very much to help young people. Why is building a bad word? And you brought up it's not the federal government as well. There's municipalities, uh, municipal governments involved, provincial governments. We're having issues with this in Hamilton right now over debate over the urban boundary expansion and such. But it seems, and this is to me a hold off from the early environmental eras of the 70s or, or sorry, the 80s and such, where it's nobody wants to build anything. Nobody wants to build anything, whether it's low income, affordable, uh, single family homes, high density, medium, and anything. We just can't get anything built yeah you're right it's a major problem um whether it's in downtown toronto or in the suburbs or even further out and a lot of it's coming down there are resident associations who oppose almost any sort of new construction and certainly any sort of density and they're saying we need to preserve neighborhood character um but the reality is that neighborhoods change and grow particularly when you're near an urban center and we need to find ways to put in some sort of density. And often the asks aren't for, you know, 40-story, 70-story condos. They're just looking for, um, like, four or five stories, small, that missing middle that we don't have. And unfortunately, the NIMBY crowd does tend to use environmental reasonings to argue for their side, or they argue that developers are always big and bad and can't be trusted. And while we certainly want to pay attention to what developers are doing and regulate that, um, the complete opposition to them isn't warranted and is often just used as an excuse to oppose any sort of density. Why is this discussion happening now? This is a problem, much like with healthcare. It's been going on for years, and yet now we're finally addressing it. Well, I think the pandemic really brought it forward because we've been seeing increases in house prices in Ontario Depending on where you are, I mean, they're all in the double digits, but in some areas as much as 30, 40% year over year, which obviously incomes can never keep up with that. Savings can never keep up with that, even if you invest them. And so a young generation has really been priced out of purchasing a home unless um, really they have a wealthy relative die or a parent who gifts them, you know, $100,000, $200,000. And that's just not a reality for most young people. I feel like Sarah Palin, drill, baby, drill, build, baby, build. Are we going to enter a different era where the next 10 years we'll see this aggressively addressed, do you think, Sabrina? I really hope we do. I think that it will become a bigger and bigger political issue um, as long as politicians aren't acting in a meaningful way on it. But politicians also tend to cater to existing homeowners because they tend to vote more. They're longtime constituents in their communities. And politicians think that existing homeowners don't want to see anything happen to their equity, even though they've made these massive windfall gains. So there's a real tension there. But I think they will eventually be forced into acting on it. Sabrina Madeau with us. Christia Freeland's budget crushes millennial homebuyer dreams. The latest from her in the National Post. Sabrina, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. You as well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Tim Powers with us, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, and with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Got to get those wills. Got to keep them sharp. They're both That's such it. good young men. But, you and, know, Great Big C has got to be ready to leap out. Right, Scott? And and congratulations to you on your successful completion uh, of your Around the Bay event and all of that sort of stuff. Good for you. Well, thank you. And thank you to the people of Hamilton. It was a lot of fun on a chilly day. And 
Scott, I didn't realize it was so friggin' hilly between Burlington <laughs> yeah. and the way back into <laughs> Hamilton there. Oh, yeah, baby. Uh, heartbreak Hill, as they call it, uh, back in the race. So there you go. Uh, all right. First of all, your thoughts on the budget yesterday, the new budget with the liberal NDP uh, agreement, whatever you want to call it. Your thoughts. Uh, will Canadians be better off? Uh, I guess that depends on your perspective. If you're um, you're somebody who wants to see an investment in significant social programs, uh, then and and who needs dental care and who uh, is challenged to find housing, then you have the potential to be better off. If you're somebody who cares about uh, fiscal probity, you're probably not as happy as you would like to be. If you care about innovation, you're probably scratching your head, saying the intent may be there, but Where's this all going to go? Um, If you're in the military, uh, you may be hopeful that you're going to get new equipment soon. If you're an Indigenous person um, who deserves uh, the rightful investment that you have not been given before, maybe there's some promise there. So I I think where you sit depends how you view that budget. Uh, Lots of emphasis on housing. It's amazing how this issue has jumped to uh, the top of people's wish list in in what is concerning them, uh, as well as inflation. Uh, Are we going to see, I'll come right out and ask you what I've asked everybody else. Why are we scared to build things here? Well, and yesterday's budget doesn't mean that things will get built faster, right? Uh, as you know, where you're sitting there today, you know, Hamilton and your associated councils and sometimes the province determines how development goes, not the, the, the government of yeah. Canada, unless it's federal crown land. So while that money is helpful there and maybe the, the tax-free savings account for housing will be helpful. That doesn't mean there's going to be any new builds anytime soon. I do find it funny, Scott, that um, the, the, the you never heard his name yesterday, Stephen Harper, but the, the Liberals clearly like the tax-free savings account idea because that was an original Harper budget idea. Now they borrowed it for housing. I guess the challenge there is do people have money to put into that account, uh, yeah. given the time that we're, we're living in when dollars are harder to get? If they do, great. Or if they can borrow the money to put it in there and use it to their effect, great. Uh, could be a very useful tool, but it's not going to fix anything quickly. Uh, let's talk about energy, because obviously climate change is is pretty much the top priority for the Liberal government. Uh, they ignored Energy Project, which is a cool operation off uh, the coast of Newfoundland, where a barge basically drops a line down and starts sucking stuff out of the uh, ocean <laughs> it's a floor. It's more complicated no, than a it's pretty, No, 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 it's pretty easy. It's pretty simple <laughs> stuff. Garden hose, down you go. It's a great yeah. idea. It's right out of Trailer Park, boys. Anyway, uh, this and it won't even be up in operation for another six years but this was announced before the budget came out and I, I think those on the right or conservatives are probably happy or anybody that believes that we should be doing more to supply canadians with energy their own energy and those around the world but how does this get by all the environmentalists i mean this will be a huge thumbs up for the uh, for the conservative party but i can't see many liberals or certainly the ndp liking it Well, the NDP don't like it. The NDP in Newfoundland and Labrador oppose it, uh, as do the federal NDP. Being from Newfoundland and Labrador, I can tell you it's a pretty crucial project uh, for for the entire province and its economic future. The argument that was made in support of it, and it's, it's factually true, 
is that the oil ex extracted from the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, where this project is, or off the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, is significantly lower emitting uh, than oil that's extracted elsewhere. And the argument Newfoundland and Labrador made, and uh, apparently the federal government has bought, is look, if we still need oil, and we still need it for 30 or 40 years, uh, and this is what just transition is, then let's use oil and produce oil that is less emitting than not. That argument doesn't fly with environmentalists. Most of them, they say uh, we shouldn't have any. Stephen Guibault, the environment minister, has been getting a lot of criticism for uh, all of this. There are 137 conditions on the final approval of the project. Uh, I guess the key ones that the government hopes will assuage some of the environmentalists in time is that it has to be net zero by 2050 uh, and that there are all other manner of technologies employed to make the greenhouse gas footprint less than it would be with any other project. This is cleaner oil than the tar sands. Uh, from what I understand, each type is used for different things, depending upon its fuel, yep. jet fuel, or, or chemicals or such. So each one has a separate sort of uh, uh, product in the end. Uh, that being said, uh, there is even less, uh, emitting less emissions, is beautiful, clean Canadian natural gas. So why don't we have a pipeline from east to west? Hey, you, 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 you may... Good idea. There's lots of natural gas, by the way, Scott, off of Newfoundland. You want to invest. I have a buddy who's in that business if you want to get in there. Um, I don't have any money to invest, just like uh, the people, <laughs> homeowners don't have any money to put in the new tax-free <laughs> savings account to buy a house they can't afford. Well, you you did hear Jonathan Wilkinson, the natural resources minister, the week before Beta Nord get approved. I mean, this is all very sequenced. Uh, say that uh, Canada needed, they were going to start producing an extra 100,000 barrel equivalent of, of natural gas. So, yeah, I think that pressure is going to come. The other argument that worked for Beta Nord, which could work for, for natural gas, is lessening uh, Europe's dependency on that product. So uh, natural gas could be a, an ongoing play. But again, uh, certainly it's not none of these things are purely free of greenhouse gases. And there will be some environmental pushback on all of that. Isn't it a bit hypocritical to uh, push Bay de Nord as a clean project when natural gas is cleaner? Uh, except it's eaten. And then you Nord. Y yes, y if you were comparing uh, apples to apples, but Beta Nord was already four years along in development, right? right? Uh, and Yeah, but we had a pipeline down to the U.S. that was pretty much built. This thing ain't going to start producing oil for six years. Uh, yeah, Biden canceled that pipeline, did he not, though? Yes, yes, he did. That's correct. Anything, any so, chance of that being fired up again, do you think, because Biden wants now more Canadian energy? Well, and also wants to sell a lot of natural gas to Europe. Um I don't know. Um, Biden also has got to find a compromise with um, environmental activists in his country. Uh, but, you know, there is a bit of a change in tone between uh, among Canada and the United States and other countries at the moment because of the war in Europe. So uh, we'll we'll see. Uh, anything may be possible, but we haven't mentioned it yet. What happened also this week, uh, the IPCC, the Inter- um, Planetary uh, Committee on Gases run by the UN, uh, carbon emissions, sorry, came forward and said, still code red for humanity. There the UN Secretary General said, we can't have any more of these projects. Well, you can 
call that out. But as you see in Canada, we're still going to have these projects and it's not realistic to say they shouldn't occur. So this tension is not going to go away, Scott. Yeah, it's unfortunate that we can't, uh, you know, smarter heads can't come together and find compromise here, but it's either uh, wide open or shut them all down. It's bizarre. Uh, Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. Uh, Tim, as always, thanks so much for the your time. Be well and have a great weekend. You too, my friend. Bye. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, recently a group of Indigenous officials traveled to the Vatican to meet with the Pope. Uh, and we know uh, how this was very much anticipated, in, especially in the wake of what was discovered uh, in residential schools uh, in, across the country in the last uh, little while or so. And he delivered a much-anticipated apology for the treatment of Indigenous children at the hands of residential schools. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Uh, Dr. Don Martin-Hill is with us, Associate Professor with the Department of Anthropology, as well as one of the original founders of the Indigenous Studies Program at McMaster university and is with us now don thank you for the time i hope you're doing well no problem doing well how are you i'm doing good thanks so much so now it's been a while this has sunken in has sunk in rather uh what are your thoughts don what comes to mind about what has happened in that trip to the vatican i think that um they have been working really hard for a very long time to get this issue addressed and they've been really effective so as much as i understand people's um feelings of hostility that they went there i also understand everything that they had set out to do um, as residential school survivors they have accomplished Um, their spirit is incredibly powerful so i I have to, you know, respect the decisions they made to go there. At the same time, I also understand the feeling that um, people don't think they should have went there because um, it might have felt to some survivors that that uh, they were asking for an apology when they shouldn't have had to ask. It should have been offered. Hmm. So I understand both sides and, and sympathize with both sides. At the same time, if, if, you know, I think what many Indigenous people are after, if anything, with the Pope is to rescind the doctrine of discovery. That is on the minds of many Indigenous people and has been for a long time. Um, If the Pope were to rescind the doctrine of discovery, then that would probably bring some measure of relief to Indigenous people worldwide. Educate us. What's the doctrine of discovery? Um, so I teach this in my spirituality class. Um, so it, it's the most important law that uh, many people seem to not know. Um, it was actually at the beginning of the Crusades around 1095 that there was a papal bull put out, Terra Nellis. Terra Nellis meaning the land is empty. Um, kings gave uh, their princes and so forth the right to discover and claim any land that was occupied by non-Christian people, mm. which then could be enslaved and the rest of the other things you know that they did um, worldwide. So 
that was the beginning of, of the, I guess, justification or the thought that they had the right uh, to go out and claim uh, lands that belong to other people. And therefore, when they came to our lands, Turtle Island, um, they uh, were running on the doctrine of discovery that they had the right to come and and a lot of murder happened um, because you were considered non-human if you were non-Christian and we were non-Christian. So um, over 90% of the indigenous populations were wiped out within the first 250 years of various imperial powers, be it Spain, uh, Britain, uh, France, um, the Dutch, <laughs> they were all vying for these lands. So every area of our Americas was impacted drastically. Some people didn't make it. Many nations did not. Um, and that law is still on the books today. Um, it was why do you think by the Supreme Court in the United States. Why do you think he stopped and, short uh, of mentioning that? The well, I would believe that they did. Like there is a number of people that were in that delegation who have been at the United Nations for some time. This is something that indigenous people want worldwide. Um, I would imagine they did. I would just imagine they didn't cover it. It is uh, something that is highly sensitive um, politically. Um, and, and therefore, I doubt that they would talk about it openly, but that has been asked of the Pope before. This is not the first delegation to go there. There's been others that have gone there and asked them to rescind the doctrine of discovery because that would alleviate a lot of the oppression or suppression that Indigenous people um, have experienced and some of, the, some of the genocide needs to be answered. Um, they talk about genocide in a very mild a diminished way in this country, but if you're an anthropologist, an archaeologist, if you're in the sciences, it, it is what it is. It, it mm. you know, it, the definition fits uh, perfectly under the United Nations Charter. Uh, an apology is one thing. What about financial restitution? And many thought that an apology would trigger that, perhaps obviously the same sort of uh, debate around the doctrine of discovery. Uh, but what about financial restitution from the church? Well, I think the goal for many uh, is, is, is rescinding the doctrine, and that would, again, we would have access to our own resources right. and riches. Um, the second one is, you know, reparations, and I think Justice Murray Sinclair put it in, in a proper context, which this takes away the current, I believe, even outside of Toronto, you had a church declaring, you know, that, that these uh, claims by Indigenous people were false. Um, there's a lot of denialism that um, people have experienced across in various churches, including the Catholic. And I think him apologizing at least silences that kind of really, you know, visceral talk that is very traumatizing to people who are finally getting recognition for what they've been through. And then to have somebody um, of stature, such as a priest, take that away is, is rather um, just adding salt to wounds. Mm. Dr. Don Martin-Hill with his Associate Professor, Department of Anthropology, as well as one of the original founders of the Indigenous Studies Program at McMaster University. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. No problem. Thank you for having me. Take care. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. And of course, yesterday was budget day. And uh, it's amazing how our uh, priorities seem to have changed. Housing way up at the top, military up at the top, uh, inflation obviously up at the top, and uh, climate change still up at the top, but um, not as much from uh, these other issues are more pressing to Canadians. Let's be honest about that. Uh, that being said, uh, the federal liberals have uh, decided to increase military spending by roughly $8 billion. To talk more about all of this and whether it's enough, where we go from here, Christian Laprac is with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, you bet. Good afternoon, Scott. Good to talk at the end of the week. So your thoughts, does this budget do, uh, it certainly does more for the military, but is this catch-up or uh, do we have any significant contribution here? Uh, well, I think, it, you know, it looks like a big number, but uh, first, I mean, $8 billion over five years is, uh, is, is a pretty modest. And if you think about the fact that we spent $400 billion on the pandemic, $8 billion is about 2% of that. Uh, so the increase, I think, uh, in the whole scheme of things, if you think about it as a premium that you pay on an insurance policy called national defense, uh, I wouldn't really call this much of an increase. And then if you break it down, so there's $6.1 billion for NORAD. Now, now, you can look at this as a significant investment in modernizing northern approaches in air defense, or you can look at it as the government throwing down the gauntlet with the Americans and saying, this is all we're paying, uh, because nobody actually knows what NORAD renewal is going to cost, because uh, we haven't actually negotiated with the Americans what actually needs to be done and who's going to pay for what. So um, it's an interesting price tag that is not clear to me what exactly this is going to buy. And if you consider that, Everything in the north costs about 10 times as much to do as it does in our parts of Canada. Um, you know, you can reduce that down to about 600 million investment in NORAD. Um, so the listeners can draw their own conclusions. Then there's 500 million that we're going to spend on sending weapons to Ukraine because it appears we don't have much of our own equipment left that we can send since our cupboards are bare. Uh, there's 100 million to modernize the military justice system that is long overdue um, and uh, that has received uh, considerable criticism from multiple fronts. So uh, um, and uh, and that that desperately needed to be done because the system has, uh, has, has significant uh, issues. Uh, then there's a little bit on, on uh, victims' rights. There's a little bit on culture change. Um, there's $150 million for health services and fitness. Um, there's uh, $10 million to align sort of operations uh, on engagement with Indigenous peoples. Uh, so by and large, there's nothing really here to any sort of significant investment in uh, expanding the force uh, in uh, is anything that would suggest uh, a, a focus on force regeneration, a uh, focus on uh, maintenance and sustainment. Uh, there's no announcement of, uh, of doing anything about reforming the uh, duplication in the procurement uh, bureaucracy, where we have two bureaucracies, the Liberals committed in 2019 to turn that into one. Uh, that's completely disappeared, you know, with two ministers in charge, that's significant inefficiencies. There's no announcement here with regards to policy innovation and, uh, and, 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 and innovating procedures of the many outdated policies, in particular when it comes to HR, but also to procurement. Uh, so this doesn't look to me like defense has all of a sudden gone to the, uh, uh, gone to the front of mind for this government. 
It certainly has gotten a lot of attention. It got a lot of play during the budget. It was mentioned a lot. Obviously, the Ukraine uh, situation has changed attitudes for Canadians. That being said, with this announcement, would would this change NATO's reaction uh, at all? Well, um, I think, you know, let's wait and see what uh, what comes in from the allies here. It is clearly a signal that Canada is not following Germany's lead uh, in terms of a significant increase in defense spending and the one-time allocation of 100 billion euros in Germany effectively to re-equip the force. I mean, Germany is not growing the force. It's simply doing essentially what Canada could have done, which is to uh, restore, regenerate, maintain and sustain its force. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it's it's certainly going a very different path from a host of European allies. And we'll also have to see, I think there'll be some significant increases in the U.S. defense budget. So I think this to me very much seems to echo sort of the the uh, comments made by Minister Jolie that Canada is not a military power. Uh, and uh, at least that's how it's perceived by, uh, by the government and by cabinet. Uh, and the investments that are being made are investments that are absolutely indispensable, for instance, for Canada to retain its membership as a co-equal within NORAD and continental defense, uh, rather than investments that would significantly enable expeditionary capacity for the Canadian Armed Forces. I mean, we have the national shipbuilding strategy. Yes, that's costing a lot of money, but the first ships aren't going to roll off the dock for uh, another decade or so. Is Christian still there? Have we lost you, Christian? Um, and then that'll wrap oh, up fairly, fairly slowly. So, you know, it, this doesn't look to me like a government that is trying to fall over itself to re-equip this organization. Uh, um, let's talk about procurement. We've only got about a minute left here, Christian. Uh, this seems to be a huge issue. You brought it up. Others have as well on the show uh, that there's money that's being left on the table that isn't even being used. And now we're asking for more. What's the issue with procurement? Why is this the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing? Well, I think there's a host of issues. So there's the procurement uh, duplication in the bureaucracy, the only NATO ally that has two of these bureaucracies for the relatively little equipment that we buy. Um, then there's the issues of outdated policies and uh, and procedures that make everything very onerous, very complicated. Uh, there's, I think, the habit of governments on both sides of the political aisle telling the Kenyan forces they'll get the equipment they need. But what they're really talking about is getting the right money into the right writings, the writings the government holds uh, or the, that the government would like to win. And then there's, of course, the issue of playing political football uh, to score political points on procurement, as the Liberal government seems to be a world champion at. Uh, so, you know, the F-35 announcement is, uh, is, is, is one good example here. And I don't see an effort by the Liberal government to move to a more multipartisan approach, as is common in Australia and in France, where we try to make sure that all political parties vote for key defense decisions precisely so we don't end up politicizing them. So no any particular innovation here on this particular file that I can see. Christian Leprac with us, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute talking about the budget yesterday and how it affects the military. Christian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Have a great weekend. Be well. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. To you and the listeners, a great weekend. All right, we talked about this uh, all during the pandemic, and here we are coming towards the end of the pandemic, hopefully. And you got to wonder if this problem is falling off our radar as we talk about pharmacare, dental care, $10 a day daycare, which, you know, populist things, everybody wants them. Who wouldn't want that? Of course, we should all be having that. 
the issue is this was all talked about long before a COVID-19 pandemic. And we were all bragging about our healthcare system and how great it is. We're very smug. We have our nose in the air. Look at this. Look what we do for everybody. And then, of course, a global pandemic hits and we realize that our healthcare system is full of holes and we are working our healthcare workers to death. And, uh, and they've been screaming forever saying that they need help. And everybody blames it all on the provinces. But when you get all the provinces lining up underneath uh, Premier Horgan in British Columbia and say, hey, we need a funding formula change, whether it's more money from the government, whether it's private uh, injection of, of cash, whatever. Uh, and then, you know, talking about pharmacare and, and dental care. We had the Canadian, uh, Canadian Dental Association on. The president says, you know, we're for everybody getting, uh, you know, health care and, and good dental hygiene and such care. Um, but the provinces are better equipped to do this. However, they don't have the cash to do it. So here we are talking about dental care, pharmacare, Medicare, and what? Basing these systems on our failing Healthcare system template? Great cartoon in the Hamilton Spectator uh, by Graham McKay today. I won't try, uh, try to describe it to you. Go to their se- website and watch it. But to me, he hits the nail on the head. Uh, there is uh, Jugmeet Singh here. I'm going explaining. Jugmeet Singh in, the, in Trudeau in a parade with healthcare and pharmacare, and next to it is a rusted old car called healthcare. Let's bring in Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician, author of When Politics uh, Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing and a fellow at the senior, uh, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute is with us now. Uh, Sean, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks for having me back, Todd. Have we lost this discussion in the sense that, you know, now that the pandemic is kind of behind us, although, again, we're seeing cases going up, although not many people are getting as severely ill, but once again, it's pressuring our healthcare system. So we're talking about lockdowns and masking rather than fixing the system. How do we get the federal government and the provinces together to change the template, doctor? So two questions in there. Have we lost the discussion? I think it certainly has toned down in the sort of the more uh, the broader media sector. But I don't think anyone in Canada, no one is going to forget the fact that we had longer lockdowns, worse lockdowns, more strict lockdowns than most other countries in the world in order to protect our healthcare system. I think that has stamped itself on most citizens, most voters' minds. And so I think politicians would, uh, you know, ignore health care at their peril. The second part of the question you asked is, how can we get the provinces and the feds together to start talking about this? Great question. I mean, uh, there are a number of books, actually, that try to answer that one question. Part of it is, uh, what do voters want? What are the fiscal situation like? What's the which way is the breeze blowing? And so I think our job, and you're doing it right here on this program right now, is try to get the breeze blowing in a particular direction that this is actually an issue that the decision makers cannot ignore. Once we get them to a point where they can't ignore it, then we can start forcing them to say, okay, these are the questions we need you to answer and and when we actually look at fundamental change. We, you know, it seems that we've been talking about dental care, pharma care, and, and daycare forever, uh, and, and we're talking about it before a pandemic, but it seems that we haven't learned anything from the pandemic regarding health care, and we're just going, you know, headfirst into something else without fixing the formula, without fixing the template. Yeah, the fascinating thing when you look at the pharmacare literature, people are talking about value-based uh, insurance design, which means we don't want to pay for drugs 
that really aren't essential, right? We don't want to pay 100% of your Viagra prescription, but we do want to pay for your insulin. And and so it's fascinating that we're allowed to have that discussion around uh, essential uh, pharmaceuticals and, and whether or not patients should pay for a bit of some of their medications that don't seem to be as life-saving, uh, uh, you know, of a life-saving nature. But that discussion, oh my gosh, you can't have that discussion in the Medicare space. But I think part of it is we just need to ask, number one, why do we have Medicare? I think we have Medicare to provide medical care. That's actually a controversial statement. Roy Romano, uh, NDP premier in the, in the 1990s of Saskatchewan, refers to Medicare as our great redistributive program. So he, he doesn't think it exists for medical care, at least according to what he wrote uh, in that comment. Then we need to ask, who are we serving? The Canadians we're serving today are very different than the Canadians we were trying to serve in the 1960s, not just demographically, but how they like to buy things and how they shop and how they think about their, their family relationships. Number three, what limitations do we face? constitutional and financial, you brought those up. And then number four, what features do other successful systems share? And what are we doing right now that is exactly the opposite? So for example, in Manitoba, the quality of toast served in hospitals became an issue during the Mm. provincial election. (laughs) And you can't have that nonsense going on and expect our system to run well. Why do we pretend it's better than what it is? And now, even with a pandemic, we're pretending that that, that, that never even happened. Uh, and again, healthcare workers have been screaming the same thing for decades. Why do we keep patting our backs, selves on the backs, and boasting about a system that's so full of holes? Well, there's two systems. There's the one that exists in reality and the one that exists in our minds that we hope will be there for us when we get sick. So that's one issue. Uh, The vast majority of Canadians never actually have to spend time in acute Mm. care hospitals, and so we live on the dream. But the second issue, and Jim Carrey captured this beautifully on Bill Maher's show a few years ago, is 2018. He went on around. He said, listen, I'm from Canada, okay, and we have socialized medicine, and I am here to tell you it's not a failure. And he got really, really mad at anyone who would say uh, that Canada's healthcare system needs to be improved. And, and it's that sort of desire to come out and protect motherhood and apple pie that really makes it difficult to change things. And I would say Jim Carrey is kind of like someone who got rescued in a rowboat when the Titanic was sinking and, and someone sitting beside him said, hey, there's someone else drowning in the water. And Jim mm. would say, well, how dare you say that? Our, look at our rowboat is wonderful. I got saved. And so we need to break through that barrier and actually say it's heartless, it's cruel when we don't start addressing the way we are failing Canadians and and look at the opportunities to do better. So that being said, doctor, are you optimistic moving forward this will be addressed or is everything else that we, you know, whether all these other plans just a distraction? So, yes, it will be addressed, but it's up to people like you and me to start simplifying this for the broader public. What we do is we make this way more complicated than it needs to be. So we talk about policy options. That's the wrong place to start. We talk about polyclinics and activity-based funding, and people's eyes glaze over and their heads spin, and they just think, oh, gosh, there's nothing we can do. We need to start with those four questions I talked about and actually look at what we're doing right now that is creating... Um, dysfunction. So, for example, I just published a piece today in the Hub about the iron triangle in healthcare. Doctors, government, and the public sector unions are locked in a rigid relationship where each one of those groups has veto power. And so you can't get change unless everybody in that group agrees to the change. Well, this is very similar to the corporatist policies we've seen in other countries, and it's 
needs to be broken up before you can proceed. We talked about governance. We could talk about the social institution of medicine. Medicine's different than education and law, and you have to try to foster these social institutions so that doctors um, know what it means to be a doctor. They know what it means to hold each other accountable. And if that withers on the vine, then you're left with just making laws and having more and more regulations. So there are some concrete things we can do. It doesn't have to be so complex. And we just need to keep talking about it. Dr. Sean Watley with us, practicing physician, author of When Politics uh, Becomes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Just talking with our last guest, Dr. Sean Watley, about uh, in his new book, well, not new, When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing. We've had him on before, uh, and he talked about Jim Carrey, uh, Jim Carrey uh, on U.S. television talking about Canadians' health care and so on and so forth. And it was interesting. I was watching a, a, an art- a news story on this on the Sunday morning uh, news shows a couple of weeks ago, and many people compare our system to the American system, uh, and our system is, of course, much more superior than nor- theirs because ours includes everybody. Uh, that being said, you're not lining up for a knee replacement in the United States of America. So anyway, I heard this stat, and I almost fell off my chair, and I said this to my wife, and let me ask you, and I'll ask Scott Radley, who is with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, hope you're having a great day, and all is well. All is well, Scott. How are you? Good. How many, what percentage of Americans uh, have access to medical insurance, do you think? Have it or have access? Have it, have it, enrolled. Uh, Let's go with uh, 75. 92%. Wow. There you go. Wow. Uh, And they said that on the CBS Good Morning, whatever show it was, uh, a few weeks ago, that uh, 10% of, it's it's, it's actually under 10%, don't have access to insurance. Uh, so again, you know, there's these myths going around. We were talking about healthcare and, and how to fix it and such, that one system is drastically better than the other, and that being the Canadian system. And, you know, the, the pandemic has proven that the, the Canadian system is full of holes. The healthcare staff and those workers in the healthcare system have been screaming about this for years, that there's a, a lack of funding and a lack of, of, uh, you know, and many blame it on the provinces because the provinces, of course, uh, um, they implement healthcare, but the money uh when when medicare started 50 percent of it was from the feds now it's less than a quarter and here we are instead of coming out of a pandemic instead of addressing the holes in our health care system we're being distracted by uh, uh things like pharmacare and dental care which of course are all needed but i loved graham's cartoon in the spec today i thought he hit it bang on scott oh he always does there was a uh and i can't remember the name i can't remember which minister it was but when Kawhi leonard the year after the Raptors won the championship, and Kawhi Leonard was a free agent, and you'll remember all the talk. Is he going to sign with the Raptors? Yeah. There were helicopters and everything else. There was a, a minister, a politician, who sent out a tweet saying, "Kawhi, stay in Canada where we have free health care." <laughs> and and this and, and I mean, look, this is said all the time. The fact that it was a politician who said it was particularly egregious. We don't have free health care. There's no. nothing free about our doctors are not philanthropists. Uh, we pay, I can't remember the number exactly, but it's something in the order of $6,000 per person in your It's tax the largest rate. tax expense. Healthcare is. is the biggest expense in the tax roll. It's, it's healthcare it is. is everything. And if we, and we don't, we don't separate these things. So people, no. when they get their taxes, their tax bill, they don't see, oh, your family paid 
$20,000 of all the taxes towards health care. The problem, and the reason I mention all this is, it's not free, and we live in a gigantic country, geographically, with not that many people. That means that in order to do all the things that we theoretically think we want to be able to do and have this utopian healthcare system where there's no wait lists and every service is available, it would cost us double or triple probably what we're already paying in taxes. And we're all good with the idea of this amazing, unbelievable, everybody gets everything healthcare system until they say, oh, by the way, taxes are going up by an extra 20% next year. Yeah. And then I think most people would say, well, hold on a sec, hold on. Do I, do I need, do I want to pay that every year or do I want to wait a little while for a procedure? And you know what? Some people would say, no, I, I want to pay the extra and get the procedure immediately. But I think a lot of people would say, hmm, I can't afford it. We can't afford yeah. to be taxed that much to cover it. So uh, let's move on. Did you hear the story about the pizza guy that took the cat? The who what? So somebody orders a pizza. And uh, then they notice the cat's missing, so they look at their uh, video, and they find that as the uh, pizza guy left the house, he took the cat. Well, a cat burglar. Wow, okay. What what kind of pizza guy takes a cat? The only thing I can think of is no tip. Uh, Yeah, or he really likes cats. Honey, I brought home a pie and a cat. That is that is an unusual one. That is a, that is a uh, yeah. I had not heard that story. I, maybe it was a maybe it was. I a, have stumped you. I have stumped you. You are lost for words. I never thought I'd see it happen. Well, I just I mean I don't know what the cat equivalent of the Westminster Dog Show is. Maybe maybe it was an award winning prize cat. Yeah, it was like it was like as long as an old guy, girl. I don't know. Anyway, was it okay? No, that that is. Um, yep, that that is. That is an unusual one. We uh, on my show we do strange stories uh, at six fifty every evening. Uh, that one. That make sure you're make sure you're listening tonight. Yeah. Uh, Scott Absolutely. Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on nine hundred CHML and online at nine hundred CHML.com. And that's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to Will Weber, Will Erskine, also Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. And to you. We love it when you step up and give us your last word. My name is Jimmy and yes we have problems and yes we have a poor budget. But has anybody tried to deal with the city of Hamilton lately in getting a building permit or anything done? It takes two to three times longer. It's like they're on the other team. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.